Acts chapter 15, Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and here we are in Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15 is a record of a couple of contentions that occurred uh, in the early church, very significant contentions, one on a body of Christ level, I mean as big as it can get, and then one on a, a personal level. And of course we're thankful for uh, instruction not only concerning the mountaintop experiences of the Christian life, but also to be given perspective and instruction related to a conflict that occurs within the body of Christ and among members within the body of Christ, because nobody is going to spend any length of time serving the Lord, and whatever our calling might be, without sooner or later having to deal with conflict and uh, contention. As we come to chapter 15 here, we're told that, and certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren there in Antioch, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So we remember that Paul and Barnabas have returned now at the end of chapter 14 from the completion of their uh, first missionary journey. They return to their sending uh, church, uh, a church located in a very Gentile city uh, called uh, Antioch. And uh, the church in Antioch is a very, very strong church, one of the strongest church churches in the early church, so much so that it had become kind of the center for missions in uh, the early church in the ancient uh, world. And so you've got Jews being saved, you've got Gentiles being saved uh, there in the city of of Antioch and the Holy Spirit is blessing everybody. You've got Jews and Gentiles serving uh, with one another, worshiping the Lord alongside uh, one another. And this great mystery that Paul speaks about in the book of Ephesians uh, being birthed, this, this living organism that Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection has supernaturally produced within human history, and that is both Jews and Gentiles, this wall that existed between them, now being united and God providing something in our lives as mankind, something greater than all divisions between uh, human beings. And there was no division between human beings in the ancient world than the division between Jew and Gentile. I don't know that that isn't the case yet today. And yet, here this miracle of the body of Christ made up of uh, living members, individual Christians from both Jewish and Gentile background now coming together to represent this wonderful uh, God of ours. And all of this is happening in such a wonderful way, really an unprecedented way, like it never happened before in uh, the early church there in the city uh, of, of Antioch. And then one day, certain men come into the city. Uh, they came down from Judea, and we know from a little bit later, as we'll see in the chapter, that they came uh, from the city of Jerusalem uh, in, uh, in particular. And uh, they come to the city of Antioch. They're Christians, and uh, they are either... Uh, very poorly taught Christians. Uh, they're certainly uh, Jewish Christians 
who are having a, a great a deal of problem uh, with what God has no problem with, and that is uniting Jews and Gentiles together in the worship of Him, and that a person, a Gentile, can be saved without becoming a Jew, uh, without honoring, uh, following the Sabbath or following, uh, receiving the rite of circumcision. And so these things, you have to put yourself in the place of these Jews. They've been raised all of their life to believe that these works, they saw the law of Moses as a means of uh, earning your way to salvation, that if you kept the law of Moses, that's how we, uh, they or anybody would make themselves qualified for heaven. And they didn't realize, they turned the law of Moses completely on its head, not realizing the law of Moses had been given to expose us as sinners in need of a Savior, a Messiah, that God would send into the world one day in Jesus. And he gave the law to the children of Israel as a means of protection in their lives in a dangerous world while they waited for that day. But they took these things and concluded that this is what's required in order to be, uh, to be saved. And when you've heard something all of your life and every uh, significant relationship in your life is tapped into the same thing, uh, sometimes it's not easy for that to just be given up in one step or in one uh, moment. And so here they are, they're Christians, uh, but they are absolutely convinced that Gentiles could be saved, but they couldn't be saved without uh, a faith in Christ and keeping the Sabbath and, and being uh, circumcised. Uh, evidently, again, as we'll see in verse 24, they came into the city of Antioch and they uh, portrayed themselves as coming uh, with their message. They're legalistic, more than legalistic. It's false doctrine uh, with implications they couldn't even begin to realize. But they portrayed themselves as coming from the elders and the leaders in Jerusalem in order to give uh, their message more credibility. And uh, uh, the elders and the apostles in Jerusalem, as we'll see, did not send them uh, at all. And so uh, it is always a warning. Uh, you have, um, I remember in, in the old days where somebody would maybe come into a Calvary Chapel uh, away from Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa and of course our tremendous uh, esteem for Pastor Chuck and the work of the Holy Spirit going on there at that church and, um, and they would sometimes come in and, uh, and make sure we knew immediately that they were from Calvary Chapel uh, Costa Mesa. And, uh, and then begin to try and represent it in a certain way. And, uh, and then you learn in this area of life and in all areas of life that not everybody who says they're speaking for someone else is actually speaking for that person. Uh, this was not what was happening uh, at, at all. And so uh, it, it isn't unlikely that when they... Uh, they're in Jerusalem, these uh, legalists in Jerusalem. They hear about this great work that God is doing uh, that they didn't consider to be a great work, saving Jews and Gentiles in the city of Antioch. 
uh, that uh, they uh, then proceeded, uh, being bothered by all of this, to then uh, make the 250 or 300 mile uh, journey from Jerusalem to Antioch uh, to set things straight. There is a certain kind of Christian, um, they're very annoying to me, maybe they aren't to you, but there's a certain kind uh, of Christian who will not cross the street to share the gospel with someone who is unsaved, but they will walk 300 miles to enter into a congregation and a church that God is blessing in order to draw people off to themselves. And uh, unfortunately, this uh, this group hasn't uh, uh, passed away in, in, the, in the early church. So they began to teach the brethren, we're told there, uh, in, in Antioch. You can imagine again, here are people, ah, here are brothers and sisters, or brothers really, uh, uh, from the significant place of Jerusalem, sent by the apostles and the leaders. So immediately people would give uh, their attention and, and give um, uh, what turns out to be undue weight to what it is that they, uh, they were saying. And so what they taught, we're told there in verse 1, that unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, uh, you can't be uh, saved. That salvation is not based upon just simply trusting in Jesus' finished work for our salvation, but now you have to be uh, circumcised in order uh, to be saved. You're adding a work to uh, Jesus' salvation, the provision as a gift. And any time you add anything to uh, uh, the free gift that Jesus has made salvation, now it's no longer a free gift, now it is a work, and now you are doing the most serious thing that you can do in uh, misrepresenting Christianity because you're saying that his death upon the cross for the uh, full and satisfying payment of our sins was not enough. You stop and think about that. And, that, and the legalists, what they're doing here is saying, that was not enough. Now you have to add this to it. And you can't add anything to his death and his burial and his resurrection. And that salvation that God has provided to us in, uh, in him. It is important to uh, notice there in verse 5 that word saved, because that's what we're talking about here. Um, they're not coming in with some kind of marginal legalism about hair length or makeup or some other kind of thing uh, like that. They're talking about the most important subject and message in human history, the most important thing that a person will ever hear in their lifetime, the most important thing that their ears will ever hear, their heart and their mind will ever process, and that is how to be saved and be made right in a relationship with God. So there's no room for error there. That message has to be absolutely accurate and absolutely clear. And Paul and Barnabas, uh, their reaction is given us in verse 2. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them. So Paul and Barnabas hear what it is that they're teaching, and they immediately rise up. They confront these 
uh, men mightily in the church. They've invested years of their life uh, in the, the, the establishment of the church in Antioch, uh, years of their life in, in Christian service. And here, these people are going to come in and do this. And, and they confronted them mightily, and the result was, we're told, no small dissension uh, and dispute. And the Greek words that are used there uh, indicate that what resulted was a heated argument, a, an uproar, a, a, a kind of a riot. This was not a quiet discussion. It was not a carnal discussion. But it was an impassioned, impassioned discussion on the part of Paul and Barnabas toward these that were coming in and trying to bring this air uh, into the church. And the Apostle Paul was essentially saying, you're going to teach this here over my dead body. You're not going to, to get to do this here. And it always requires strong leadership in a church to bring this kind of a thing, uh, to uh, rope it in and to, uh, to corral it. So Paul and Barnabas clearly uh, contending that salvation is not found in anything uh, like Jesus and anything, uh, not even anything being things that were as wonderful under the old covenant as keeping the Sabbath and, and the, the Jewish rite of, of circumcision. Well, a decision was made uh, as a result uh, by the leadership there in Antioch. They determined that Paul and Barnabas and then certain of these others, other men and others from, uh, from the city of Antioch, that they should go to Jerusalem uh, and, and go to the apostles and the elders there uh, about getting this question uh, resolved. And so they're sent there to do that. They begin to make their way to Jerusalem, being sent on their way by uh, the church. They pass through Phoenicia and Samaria. Uh, Paul and Barnabas did, describing the conversion of the Gentiles. And they caused great joy to all of the brethren. So Paul and Barnabas are being sent with others to the city of Jerusalem in order that the apostles might then uh, uh, bring a conclusion to this dispute, but never think that the apostle Paul and Barnabas were making their way to Jerusalem uh, doubting that they were wrong in any way in the stand that they had uh, taken. So there's no doubt in his mind because they go to these different cities on the way and they're talking about how all of these Gentiles are being saved, not on the basis of the Sabbath, not on the basis of circumcision or any other work, but simply on the basis of trusting in Christ for that salvation. So he knows how this is going to land uh, and, and he demonstrates it in, uh, in how he conducted himself as they're making their way uh, there. And so being sent on their way, uh, they, uh, they then made their way to Jerusalem. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church, the Christians there, and the apostles and the elders uh, there over the church in Jerusalem. And they reported, uh, Paul and Barnabas did, all things that God had done uh, with them. So probably recounting to them face-to-face uh, -face for the first time, recounting to them uh, all of the Gentiles that were being saved 
in the cities that they had gone to on their first missionary journey and saved under the preaching uh, of, uh, of salvation found in faith in Christ uh, alone. And so they brought that, uh, that report uh, uh, to uh, the apostles there, but also present were the, this other people that had been uh, become Christians, but they were of the sect of the, the Pharisees, and, uh, and, and were told they're Christians. They believed. They rose up in, in conflict with Paul and Barnabas here, saying it is necessary uh, to circumcise them, that is the Gentiles, and to command them to keep uh, the law of Moses. And so you notice that word necessary there. It's a strong word, uh, not a suggestion, but this is necessary for salvation. Now, uh, and then things are uh, laid out here and both sides being able to lay out uh, their, uh, their perspective related to all of this. In verse 6, um, what happens is the apostles and the leaders there in the church that have been asked to uh, come to a decision about this, uh, this conflict, um, they separate themselves now from Paul and Barnabas and, uh, and from the others, the, those that have been saved out of the uh, Pharisee uh, background, to now uh, consider the, the question among themselves. And so a discussion uh, con- uh, ensued, verse 7, and when there had been much dispute, so you have the apostles, you have the elders, this thing has been put before them, and, uh, and there is not merely a conversation that occurs, but a conversation that, uh, that involves a dispute. There are different opinions about how this, which side is, is right uh, related uh, to, to all of this. And so the floor was opened up. Everybody was free to share their perspective on the issue, and, uh, and they did. And so here, this passionate disputing between one another, one group would say, or one person would say one thing, and then uh, when he was done, then another would say something, uh, examining that position by way of an argument. Nothing carnal about it uh, at all. And so it went on for some time. Uh, it's very clear that nobody was rushed here uh, related uh, to any of this. Everybody got to share their heart and until, if you've ever been in that kind of a discussion, uh, uh, everybody has kind of said everything that they can say or everything that they want to say, and then there is this this lull. Uh, And now, uh, where do we go from here? And and that lull is important. It's important that everybody shares their perspective because you want the whole group to move forward unified. And so this lull occurs here, and... uh, and everything, everybody realizes now uh, everything that can be said about this has been said. And at that particular point, the apostle Peter then rises to his feet, we're told, and he said to them, men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, and I want you to notice how much he brings up God here. 
in all of this. In verse 7, uh, God chose among us uh, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and be saved. So God, who knows uh, the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit uh, just as he did to us and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. And now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, uh, which neither our fathers nor we uh, were able to uh, bear. And so, but we believe that through the grace of, our, of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner uh, as they. And so, Peter, there's three great points that he makes in what he declares here. First, he reminds them that God had saved the Roman centurion, by the name of Cornelius, his entire family, all of his friends, uh, a good while ago, and, and, and actually 10 years before this Jerusalem council uh, occurred. And uh, God did that in the city of Caesarea. God saved this Gentile family, friends, all of them simply on the basis of faith. Nobody brought up keeping the law of Moses or, or circumcision. In other words, God has already for 10 years, been saving Gentiles apart from circumcision and the keeping of the law uh, of, of Moses and, and all of this, <clears throat> in regard to all of this. <clears throat> Excuse me. So in Peter's mind, God had spoken 10 years earlier on this subject. Uh, he, he couldn't understand, on one hand, why this council was even necessary in light of, of the history of, of what was going on everywhere in the expansion of, of the kingdom of God in the uh, early church. And so uh, he declares uh, that to add these things, keeping the law of Moses, circumcision, uh, to salvation, uh, in verse 10, was to test God. So Peter looks at this and he says, what we're dealing with here on the part of these Pharisees from their background is not a conflict between them and Paul and Barnabas. It's a conflict between them and God. They're testing God in what this doctrine, false doctrine, they've brought to the church there uh, in, in Antioch. And, and then second, he reminded them that God had... Uh, save these Gentiles based solely upon uh, on faith and not works. And then he reminded them that the law of Moses was a yoke that shouldn't be placed upon uh, the Gentiles. And when when uh, when Peter mentioned this, uh, Peter is not m uh, emphasizing the burden of the law uh, of Moses, though it, it was that in its in its own way. He's communicating rather forcefully that since the law of Moses had been unable to bring a single Jew to salvation during its entire existence, after all of these years, uh, then uh, why would we bring that old covenant kind of baggage associated with that into the new covenant and then verse 11, with that, the Apostle Paul, uh, Peter rather, he lands solidly on the side of uh, salvation based solely upon uh, faith in 
uh, Christ. And again, he brings up God three times in what he brings up. You are not up against Paul and Barnabas. You are up against God on every level in this, this, uh, this, this false doctrine or the, the Judaizers uh, or, or Pharisees. Legalistic Christians were uh, up against that. I think it's very, very important in, uh, in Peter's um, uh, speaking here on all of this and, and to notice concerning his comments and in a moment uh, the comments of, of James. Very, very frequently you will hear, especially if you um, are a Christian who has come out of a, uh, a, a very liberal Christian background, uh, or if you encounter Christians who are from a liberal uh, a Christian background, or even a, 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 on the level of an apostate in terms of uh, what has been done to Christianity under under man's ideas in, in liberalism, theological uh, liberalism. And what they will contend, uh, because in 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 theological liberalism, um, their intent upon, uh, is upon uh, discrediting the Apostle Paul uh, because the Apostle Paul was used by the Holy Spirit uh, to bring into existence through his letters all kinds of commands about holiness, about purity, about salvation, uh, that they don't like and, and that they don't want to follow or they don't want to be responsible for reinforcing among God's people. And so they need to discredit the Apostle Paul. And how they endeavor to discredit him is by saying that this whole idea of salvation on the basis uh, of uh, of faith and the, and the Christianity that Paul describes in his letters, and they don't ascribe it to the Holy Spirit, that what Paul has done is he stepped in and he has essentially hijacked Christianity from what Jesus intended it to be. And so they will reject all of Paul's epistles and say this was something he came into, into Christianity tried to take it over, hijack it away from exactly what, uh, what Jesus, uh, the opposite of what Jesus intended it to be. The problem is, and there's a lot of problems with that, but you cannot hold that view and ever read or take seriously this chapter. Uh, or Jesus with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. But here you have not Peter standing up and saying, listen, we got to give some serious thought to what the Apostle Paul is saying here about salvation being solely on the basis of faith and having nothing to do in terms of salvation by uh, works, even the works of the Old, uh, Old Testament. And, and so we need to put Paul in his place. He's hijacking Christianity from what we know about Jesus. It was a perfect place for Peter to step in and characterize it that way. He doesn't do anything of the sort. He falls in right behind the apostle 
uh, Paul in these things. It is not an invention of the Apostle Paul. We're going to see James, the, uh, the half-brother of Jesus, is going to do the same thing as all of the apostles and leaders in this council are going to do. It is a very crafty and uh, very deceitful uh, 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 method that is used to, to try and uh, discredit uh, Paul and salvation as requiring a simple faith in Jesus to receive that salvation. But you can't see uh, that anywhere in this chapter or anywhere uh, in the Bible. And so uh, here is the Apostle Paul, or Peter here, as he's talking about, uh, and they've all heard the reports of these Gentiles being saved, and then importantly, they've heard about God bringing and performing signs and wonders in affirming the gospel that Paul preached and the early church preached. In other words, not only did Peter and James and all of the leadership of the early church, all of the apostles of the, leader of the early church, recognize Paul's teaching to be from the Holy Spirit and to be consistent with what Jesus uh, it, it brought into existence in, in human history, but God involved himself as well when he didn't need to, and he wouldn't have, unless it was uh, what uh, a, a fair and accurate representation uh, of his his message, and so uh, they have this discussion uh, privately, and then uh, the multitude uh, kept silent. And uh, somewhere in the course of things, Paul and uh, Barnabas are brought into the group, and they declared how many miracles and wonders God had worked confirming the gospel, confirming the word of God with signs and wonders through them uh, among uh, the Gentiles. And so then there's the silence after what it is that they've done. And after they had become silent, James, here's the half-brother uh, of, of Jesus, kind of weird to call your half-brother Lord, and yet he does. This is the author of the book of James by the Holy Spirit, and he was considered um, uh, the, the head, uh, the authority of the church there in, in uh, Jerusalem. Now, when James answers now and he begins to speak, it isn't unlikely that uh, the Pharisees, uh, the legalistic side of this argument, thought, okay, Peter said his thing, and yeah, he did a lot of damage to what we say, but here's our very conservative, uh, theologically conservative James about to take his, uh, uh, his feet and uh, put all of them in, uh, in their place, and yet uh, the exact opposite is going to occur. And James answered, and he said, men and brethren, and he really is recognized as the authority there and in the, the head of the church there. He said, Simon has declared how God, and again, here is, is James. He is going to speak um, uh, the final uh, verdict related to all of this. They're all going to agree with that. And so if you're going to make a decision on something as important as this, how people are saved, the message of the Christian, uh, well, you better 
uh, have God in your corner. And you better not say, well, you know, I think in my exposure to People Magazine and uh, Entertainment Tonight, I think that really the best thing to do here. No, you better be able to quote God and Scripture to back up your position. And that's exactly what he's, he's going to do. Simon has declared how God at the very first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. He's told us about Cornelius, his family, all of his friends. And, and none of this is inconsistent, James says, with the Scriptures. And so he says not only is this something that God did, but it's consistent with the writings of the Old Testament and with the words of the prophets. They agree with this. So he founds a biblical foundation for the salvation of Gentiles on the basis of, uh, of grace and through faith. He's, and, and now he quotes from the Old Testament, after this, God had declared uh, through the prophets, after this I will return, and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Who's the rest of mankind? The Gentile world. Even all of the Gentiles who are called by my uh, name, says the Lord, who does all these uh, things. And so here he reveals God's heart uh, for the salvation of the Gentiles and uh, the sal their actual uh, salvation, the biblical foundation for that. And then he closes uh, his remarks in this regard, uh, known to God from eternity are uh, all of, uh, of his works. And so he's saying that in essence there, that while the, God's salvation of the Gentiles, apart from the law of Moses and circumcision and the keeping uh, of Sabbath, despite the fact that that was creating anxiousness in those that came from a Jewish background, uh, that God had known from eternity uh, that he would do exactly this uh, same thing. And therefore, James continued, I judge that we should not trouble those from among uh, the Gentiles who are turning to God. Now, there's a shift that occurs here in verse 19. So, um, he lays to rest the decision of the apostles and, and leaders related to this issue. Jew, uh, Gentiles and, and Jews are saved the same way through faith in Christ. And, and that's a settled issue. Now, he, uh, he recognizes that he still has a problem on his hands, at least in the sense that leaders understand that there are problems that occur within the body of Christ that you're not free to ignore. You have to insert yourself into them for the sake of the unity of the body of Christ. So here is James, comes from a very Jewish background, um, and, and so he has just delivered, so to speak, just delivered the Gentiles from having to essentially become Jews in order to be saved, and, and so things have landed very favorably toward Gentiles, but he has a heart and concern for the Jews, too, for both sides. You've got these Gentiles coming uh, to becoming Christians out of just, just the worst paganism uh, that, that you can imagine. I mean, it could, it could not be any more rough around the edges than they, they were. 
it would be kind of like having, you know, a hundred hell's angels uh, motorcyclists uh, saved on a Friday and then coming to church on Sunday. There are going to be some rough edges and and everybody's going to have to deal with it. And so here he tells the Jews, you've got to back off from demanding this of the Gentiles. Now he's going to say to the Gentile uh, uh, believers, you need to have a little sensitivity uh, toward the Jews and where they're coming from. Because how in the world is God going to make uh, one church universal or even a local church How is that church going to be unified unless Jew and Gentile can be unified uh, in that? Uh, And and especially in the realm of eating. So as as he's going to get to here in a moment. So here he moves away from, now he moves into um, something that isn't a law that he starts to lay down in in verse 19. Now he's not talking about God, and then uh, he has the wisdom of God, but he's not talking about God. He's not quoting verses to back this up from the Old Testament. He is, he is concerned now that these two very diverse groups that are coming together at the, in this early church um, uh, uh, be able to get uh, along. And so therefore I judge that we should not trouble those. So he, he's speaking here to uh, the Jews Uh, trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. But we also need to write to them, the Gentile believers, to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses has throughout many generations those who preach him in every city, being read in the synagogues uh, every uh, Sabbath. And so he asks now the Gentile believers to um, take into their consideration the sensitivities of the Jews uh, on the, uh, uh, in terms of their background, and, and he uh, asks them to refrain from things polluted uh, 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 to idols, and, uh, and, and that is don't bring to the church potluck meat that you barbecued that you bought at the idol temple that morning. How's a Jew going to eat that? How are we ever going to get Jews and Gentiles together for a meal, let alone for a church service? And they did a lot of eating in the early church. And so he said, don't be bringing this stuff to the potluck. How are you going to get a Jew and a Gentile to go to one another's house for dinner and get to know one another if there isn't some kind of sensitivity on the part of both? So he says, listen, refrain from things that are polluted uh, to to idols. The Jews will look at you bringing meat from uh, the, the the places that have been uh, where they've been sacrificed to idols, and, and uh, even though you know the idol is is nothing, uh, they're they're going to have difficulty taking your uh, your seriousness as a Christian, uh, taking that taking that seriously that you've really given up idolatry, and so uh, he says. Uh, 
refrain from those things and from sexual immorality and, and the sec- re- refraining from sexual immorality here is not something that's to be done by the Gentiles in deference to the Jews. That's a command, Old Testament and, and uh, New Testament. But uh, the, the uh, Jewish council wanted the Gentiles to know that sexual immorality uh, does not play any part in the Christian life. Um, sexual immorality was known in ancient times and in modern times as the, among the Jews as the sin of the Gentiles. And he said then to refrain from things that are uh, strangled, which then ties into the final command uh, from blood. The law of Moses required that before a Jew could eat any kind of meat, it had to be bled because the life is in the blood. Uh, and, and so they were not to eat unbled meat. And, uh, and, of course, for the Gentiles, you know, you would just have an animal that would be strangled or killed. And that mean it means it would then just soak in its own blood and you'd have the juiciest steak uh, to serve to your Jewish friends coming that night uh, for dinner. And so uh, he says, listen, uh, don't do that. And again, just refrain from things out of love. Not out of a, I'm not laying down a, a new series of commandments, but out of a love for the unity of the whole of this beautiful thing called the body of Christ and the diversity that's in this body. Um, be sensitive toward one another. He'd already put the Judaizers and the, the legalists in their place, and then now he gently. Uh, makes the Gentiles aware of, of uh, their part in all of it. And then it pleased the apostles and the elders and the whole church, so they're all in agreement with this, to send chosen men of their own company, those from Jerusalem, to go back to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, and uh, the two men that they sent with them was Judas, uh, who was also named uh, uh, Barsabbas and Silas, uh, leading mo- men among the brethren. So real wisdom on the part of the apostles here. Um, if they just sent Paul and Barnabas back with the letter, back to Antioch with the the church's, uh, the apostles' decision on it. They say, yeah, you wrote that letter and fiddled with it on the way uh, here. So he sends these uh, witnesses that are impartial uh, to deliver the uh, letter as well. And they wrote this letter uh, by them. The apostles, the elders, and the brethren, uh, to the brethren, who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, those that have been troubled by this false teaching. Greetings. Since we have heard that some went out from, uh, 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 who went out from us have troubled you with uh, words unsettling your souls, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law to whom we gave no such commandment. We did not send them. We want you to know that. But it seemed good to us being assembled with one accord uh, to send chosen men to you with our beloved strong endorsement of Barnabas and Paul, uh, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have sent, therefore, uh, Judas and Silas, who will also report uh, the same thing uh, by word of mouth, uh, the message and the conclusion that we came to. For it seemed good 
to the Holy Spirit, and they recognized that the Holy Spirit's wisdom was upon everything that they had uh, 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 come to here as a, a solution and a conclusion, and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood and from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. And if you keep yourself from these things, you do well, uh, fare well. Uh, go, grow and enjoy uh, your Christian life without uh, this distraction, but with these sensitivities to the uh, body of Christ as, uh, as a whole. And so when they were sent off, they then came to Antioch, and when they did, they gathered the whole multitude of the church together, probably a Sunday morning service, Sunday night service, something like that. And then they delivered the letter. And when they had read it to the whole congregation, everybody rejoiced over its encouragement. And, uh, and uh, without a doubt, without, certainly the Gentile Christians uh, um, uh, and uh, here, but then also uh, the Jews recognizing the wisdom of, of kind of the, uh, nudging and making the Gentiles sensitive to their sensitivities as, as well. And so there was joy. It was an encouragement. Now Judas and Silas themselves being prophets also, they exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words and after they had stayed there for a time, uh, they were sent back with greetings from the brethren there in Antioch to the apostles there in Jerusalem. Tell them thank you and, and hi from us and God bless you. However, it seemed good to, uh, to Silas, one of the two that had been sent, to remain there. And Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch teaching and preaching uh, the word of the Lord with many others uh, also. And so certainly a very strong passage teaching that salvation is a gift from God that is received into our lives by, uh, by faith, by trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. It also speaks to us that there will be things in our life, as, as Jude said, contend earnestly for the faith, uh, that when things uh, occur uh, like this, that it does require standing up and uh, for the truth and not letting something like that uh, slide. And it was important for uh, Paul and Barnabas uh, to do that. Not, um, we can tend to look down on um, this kind of conflict in the body of Christ uh, when it occurs because so much of what uh, is dealt with in, in terms of conflict within a local body is not worthy of conflict. But it doesn't mean that there aren't issues where there really needs to be an honest contention over the issue and for it to land on the right side for the protection of what it is that, that God uh, is doing. And then after some days, verse 36 Paul uh, said, and this is a, a, a couple of years probably after all of these, uh, these events, uh, Paul then approaches Barnabas and he says, let's go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of God and see how they're doing. Let's go back and visit all of the cities that we established churches in 
uh, in, on our first missionary journey. We recognized that virtually all of those were cities that were very hostile to the message, very hostile to Christianity. Let's go back and find out how they're doing. And so here is the Apostle Paul's great heart for uh, the body of Christ and uh, the individual uh, churches. And so he approaches uh, Barnabas in, in this regard, and uh, Barnabas was, we're told, determined to take with them John uh, called Mark. Now, you might remember from the first missionary journey that uh, partway in the very early part of the first missionary journey that John Mark, who was a cousin of Barnabas, he abandoned them very early in the journey. It was a significant loss for Paul and Barnabas. Uh, John Mark had come in order to be, um, to take care of the details. In other words, to go ahead to the next city, arrange for a place to stay, uh, find a place to get food, all of these logistical things that needed to be done so Paul and Barnabas could keep their attention upon the spiritual side of things. And so when uh, John Mark abandons them and goes back to Jerusalem, uh, it really left them in a, in a difficult uh, place of now having to do things that they had, hadn't intended upon uh, having uh, to do. They needed him, uh, they needed his help, and, and he uh, abandoned them uh, very early in that that missionary journey. And Paul makes note of it in verse 38, but Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and not gone on uh, with them to do the work. So the Apostle Paul remembers very well when John Mark abandoned them and went back to Jerusalem. And he makes mention of it here and that it was, it, uh, it, it, it was in, uh, in Pamphylia. And so uh, he abandoned us there. He didn't just say, Mark, uh, abandoned us on our first missionary journey. He abandoned us in Pamphylia. You might remember when we studied in chapter 13 that I mentioned that when Paul and Barnabas came to the city of Perga in Pamphylia, that there was... Uh, no mention of Paul and Barnabas uh, preaching in Perga, in, in Pamphylia, but that they moved directly to Antioch of Pisidia. And what that has caused a, a lot of Bible studies, uh, uh, students uh, to speculate that this might have occurred in Paul's life because he contracted malaria at this point in time in, the, uh, in that first missionary journey, uh, complete with all of the, the headaches that are described historically as like uh, having a, a firebrand, you know, uh, impressed, uh, thrust through your forehead, uh, or like a, somebody drilling a hole through a man's temple. I mean, you just imagine the pain of this particular malaria that was common in the Roman Empire and in that region at, at that at that time, and uh, and because this region was a low-lying. Uh, region and Perga was at sea level. It was a hotbed for uh, 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 getting malaria. And the idea is that Paul 
and Barnabas. They made their way quickly through Perga, did not do any ministry there. They made their way to Antioch. Antioch was a city that was at an elevation of 3,600 feet uh, in order to escape that low-lying area in order for Paul to get healed up from uh, this disease or this malaria that he had uh, contracted. In the Bible record, it's, it's sanctified speculation, but it's solid. It's a, uh, the biblical record is consistent with all of this. Paul would later write his letter to the churches in Galatia, uh, including uh, this, this church of, of Antioch and Pisidia, and he declared in Galatians chapter 4, uh, you know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at the first. I hadn't, it wasn't a part of my plan for the first missionary journey. Um, and, uh, I, I, you know, it could see where I was brought there to heal. And as I, as I healed up, I preached the gospel to you. And my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. And what then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear you witness that you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them uh, to me. And so if Paul did contract malaria or some other kind of um, debilitating disease there in Pamphylia, that was the very time that Paul and Barnabas would have desperately needed uh, John Mark to continue with them. It was the world's worst time to abandon them. And Paul remembered uh, all, all uh, of that. We aren't told why, uh, why uh, John Mark uh, abandoned them. Could have been out of fear for his own safety. Uh, that wouldn't be the first time that somebody's done that. Um, it could have been that uh, he was exposed in the early part of that first missionary journey, you might remember, to an intensity of spiritual warfare that he probably had never seen before, even remotely in his life, and frightened him to uh, return uh, back, uh, uh, back home as a result of, of that. Um, and, uh, and so uh, it, 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 that could be a, a good reason. It could be because he's, he comes from Jerusalem, very legalistic background. And so uh, here he's traveling with him. He had no idea that so many Gentiles were going to become Christians. And, uh, and it was too much for maybe his theological background. We don't know. And, uh, or or uh, John Mark could have been upset with a, a significant change that the Holy Spirit made in the ministry of Paul and Barnabas as a team in chapter 13, because it's at that point in the biblical record that the Apostle Paul uh, goes from being called Saul uh, to being called uh, uh, Paul uh, in the record. And uh, additionally, when they began that missionary journey, uh, the missionary journey they were referred to as Barnabas and Saul. And then after that, they were recall, uh, the missionary journey was referred to as Paul and his uh, party. And so clearly at this point, uh, the, uh, uh, Paul being an apostle, it was God's intent all along that he would rise to become the lead in these missionary journeys, and he did. And to Barnabas's credit, uh, he recognized this is from God, and he gave him uh, that 
that position. But you've got family involved now, and sometimes uh, that gets uh, very, very complicated. And so uh, maybe Bar- uh, Mark had a problem with it. We don't know uh, for sure. What we do know is that he never should have abandoned them on that trip. He should have remained faithful to them uh, on, on that trip as they're involved in the most important thing uh, in the world. This was not running an errand to pick up a pizza for someone or anything like this. We're talking about advancing uh, the gospel, the Great Commission in the world, and, and he, uh, he backed uh, out of it. And so the Apostle Paul, he proposes to Barnabas that they should return to those uh, those churches. It was Paul's uh, idea as he, as he uh, presents it to uh, Barnabas, and we're told again there in verse 37, Barnabas agrees to, but he further determined that they take John Mark, his nephew, with them once again to give him uh, a second chance. And he was very, very determined, and that, uh, that word means determined. He is determined, and when and and the way the language is, is he says essentially to Paul, um, "I will uh, go, but I I make John Mark's accompanying us a condition of doing what it is that you're proposing." So we kind of view Barnabas as this kind of easygoing kind of guy and all, but for whatever reason, he digs in here. I'll do it, but I won't do it unless my cousin gets a, uh, a second uh, uh, chance here. And, and there in verse 38, uh, we, uh, Paul hears this, and he insisted. So now you have determined, uh, running headlong into insisted, and, and Paul insisted that John Mark not accompany them. He was uh, uh, dug in. He did not consider it to be a good idea. And, and uh, he, he just didn't think that it would be wise to do so. So he strongly uh, resisted uh, this uh, and, and gave his reason there. He just said when push came to shove with him uh, and everything got hard, as it always does in, in Christian service, Mark cannot be trusted uh, to stand uh, in, in the demands of that moment. And, and it, it's not a, a place where we can go out and have our flank cave in spiritual warfare. We need somebody that we can can trust. And so you've got Barnabas is determined, you've meeting Paul's uh, insisted. They're both very much dug in uh, on the issue. It's the equivalent, spiritual equivalent of the old paradox. What happens when an irresistible force meets an immovable uh, object? Well, we know what happened here. They contended over the issue, and the issue became a very, very sharp contention. And the Greek word that's used there for contention, uh, it it intimates that this discussion was a very strong discussion between the two. It was heated, it was emotional, but it was not carnal. It's kind of funny, and our culture is so afraid of open communication, face to face. So afraid that something like this might happen. Uh, we, will, we will slaughter people online. 
is a culture. We will slaughter people behind their back and gossip and slander, destroy their livelihood, destroy their reputation. But somehow we're terrified uh, of face-to-face communication that is honest and, and direct and, and somehow think that this is always an expression of carnality. It wasn't at all. They laid out both of their, uh, how they uh, viewed this. Their convictions were deeply held uh, by one another. There's exasperation with one another and uh, it, it not being able to convince the other to do, see things their way. And then the, the, uh, the exasperation and the discussion and contention becomes so great that they parted from one another. They separated and, and Barnabas then took uh, Mark and he sailed to Cyprus uh, to continue the work. And Cyprus was Barnabas's home uh, country, as we're told there in, in verse uh, 39. He went off with, with Mark and, uh, to, start, to go do, continues God's work somewhere else. Paul then chooses Silas to accompany him now on this second missionary journey. And Paul and Barnabas would never serve again. So they've known each other, served side by side in ministry for 10 years and, uh, and, uh, and known each other for 10 years, side by side for six years, and they would never ever uh, serve uh, each other again. I think very often um, I hear the passage taught uh, and, 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 that, uh, and I hear it said that Paul was wrong in being uh, so uh, firm here and that is an evidence of the fact that he recognized that he was wrong was that later on in his life uh, he had a reconciliation with John Mark and, and that that reconciliation uh, proves uh, that Paul recognized he was in error here. And I think it's a very superficial uh, handling of, uh, of the passage. Uh, somebody has said about, um, about Paul's refusal in terms of, of uh, Mark accompanying them on that second missionary journey that it was the right decision for the moment. It was the right decision for the second missionary journey, but it wasn't the right decision for the entirety of his life. And, and we see that in Paul. It was the right decision in the moment, but I wasn't going to keep him in that doghouse for the remainder of his life as soon as he had the maturity to be able to handle ministry successfully and not get slaughtered and uh, imagine losing his confidence running home a second time in a row, he could be lost as a servant of the Lord for the rest of his life. And God is going to use him. Mark is going to come under the tutelage of, of Peter, and God is going to make him the author of uh, the gospel according uh, to Mark. So God had tremendous plans for Mark yet. But, but and, and so here was, uh, here was the, uh, as we look at the Scriptures, Paul was, it's, it's not a broad brush. Paul was being uh, very accurate and, and, and precise in, in his decision-making uh, here. Late in his life, Paul wrote to Timothy, 2 Timothy 
chapter 4, verse 11, uh, and he said, only Luke is with me. Um, get Mark, and he's speaking of this Mark, bring him uh, with you, for he is useful to me for uh, the ministry. So a reconciliation did occur between um, Paul and Mark, but not because Paul had been wrong here in Acts chapter 15. And, I, and again, I agree wholeheartedly with the observation that, that someone has made uh, concerning our, our text, and, 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 and I'll, put, I'll put it in a price way, it's a little wordy on it. Paul's decision was right, the right decision at the time, but not for all time, for Mark. And, and I'm inclined to believe that Mark really grew from this experience, uh, grew from taking on the responsibility of his failure, and, uh, and, uh, and uh, grew in spiritual maturity and faithfulness under Barnabas. Again, he comes under the, the, uh, uh, the influence of the apostle Peter, and, and then when he's reintroduced to Paul later in life, he was a different man. I, I am very hesitant to put any blame here on the Apostle Paul uh, for two simple reasons, both of which come out uh, of, of our text. First, I think it's very significant in verse 40 that when Paul and Silas went out on their second missionary journey, they alone went out with the blessing of the leadership of the church in Antioch. There's no record that Barnabas and, and, uh, and, and Mark went out with that blessing from that that. Uh, that sending uh, uh, church. And additionally, uh, there is, I think, a, 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 perhaps a tacit endorsement of the Holy Spirit concerning uh, the Apostle Paul that uh, the, in the remaining 13 chapters of the book of Acts, they follow the ministry of the Apostle Paul exclusively. There is never a mention of Barnabas again. Uh, in the record, God's record of, of the early, uh, early church. I think that uh, a, a third reason that I think that uh, Paul was right and I, and I think that um, Barnabas was wrong here is that in that chapter 13 where uh, Paul comes into his own and God elevates him into his fully into his position as an apostle and the leader of these missionary journeys, God's choice for the leading of these missionary journeys, Barnabas goes from being the lead to now becoming a support person to the apostle uh, Paul. And it was exactly as God wanted it to be. And Barnabas recognized it initially. And so because the apostle Paul had a greater spiritual authority when he said to Barnabas, no, we're not taking uh, John Mark. It was Barnabas's place to submit to that authority and then to trust God to work out the, that decision, whether he thought it was right or not, for that to, to be handled between the Apostle Paul and, uh, and, and the Lord. And to come in and say, to look and say, he has the authority, he has the greater responsibility, and I will support him. And there is always within leadership within a church, of course, you have to be careful uh, not to misuse your authority within the body uh, of, of Christ, um, but there is 
there is this exercise of authority that, that goes on. And as long as a leader asks of another leader, for instance, me as the senior pastor, uh, asks of a senior, uh, an assistant pastor there in an in a, in a assisting position, as long as I ask them to do something that is not unbiblical and not immoral, then they need to submit to that by virtue of the position of authority. Say just what they... Have the contention. Have the discussion in the office. But then ultimately, if there's going to be a split or a division, there needs to be submission to, uh, to that authority. I think that there's a... And I know I'm a couple minutes over here, uh, and I'm sensitive to that, believe it or not. Um, I remember reading in a book on ministry... Uh, many years ago from uh, 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 and and it had it had a statement about leaders in in this whole uh, in this whole issue of submission to authority and this mission organization the leader of it wrote concerning the mission organization he said whenever we bring on a new leader one of the very first things we do is we deliberately test their submission to authority. And by asking them to do something that they may not necessarily agree with, that they may disagree with, but it's biblical for them to do it in terms of submission to authority. And he says, if they won't do that, out they go until they learn that in their life. Because you can't have a team in which you've got everybody viewing this as their thing supremely. And it's, and it's good. And here, in the, the initial uh, kind of uh, thing with Paul and Barnabas, Barnabas submitted to that authority. And everything went fine. Everything went sideways when he when it was tested in this way with the Apostle Paul, and I think it was a mistake on his part, um, though uh, God obviously had grace over everybody's life that was involved in this, as he does in, in every uh, situation. So verse 40, Paul chose Silas. He went commended uh, by the church, the brethren, to head out and, and to, to uh, do things. Thankfully, when this split occurred between Paul and Barnabas, um, uh, when, when that occurred, uh, when that split occurred, the church was mature enough not to split over the issue and, and to hold it together. The leadership then endorsed, uh, got the mind of the Lord, endorsed what was the thing with Paul, and then, and then that moved forward. The problem always occurs when people take sides on this before they get the mind of the Lord or they feel like they need to fix something in five minutes that God is going to fix over a period of years. And, uh, and then the churches get destroyed uh, by that. And uh, thankfully, strong leadership here uh, stepped in, made their mind, uh, uh, mind known on this, and it didn't bring uh, a division from uh, expanding from the leaders then significantly into the body. And so he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer.
Father, thank you for this instruction tonight um, from your word. Again, this contention and disagreements and, and how to handle them in a healthy way and, and even to learn from now how not to handle uh, them is invaluable to us. And we thank you for our time in your word this evening. Lord, we pray that you would um, fill us with your Holy Spirit now. And we pray that you take us out into a wonderful week in you. We pray that you would give us a sensitivity to the moving of your Holy Spirit, even as we've sung tonight all of the blessings that you pour out upon us. We pray that you would give us our daily bread in this coming week. We pray that you would help us to be quick to receive uh, your grace and extend grace to others. And Lord, that you would keep us from evil and deliver us from temptation. Give us victory in the face of all of that that is coming our way so that if you should tarry, we can come and once again sit in this place and enjoy you and the things of you once again. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Mike, would you close us?